Hey, welcome back to another episode of Spreading the Word. I'm your host, Paul Basanti, and today we're going to be talking about what's the problem with sin anyway? What is sin? Why is it an issue? Why are we all worked up about it? We're going to get into that today. But I want to start with a story about little Paul from when I was a wee little boy, probably about five years old. So my sister and I, back in the day when kids were allowed to just, you know, roam the neighborhood, uh, would go to the candy store after we'd get our allowance from our parents and we'd we'd decide what we'd spend our, you know, 25 cents to a dollar on at, at the candy store. And we'd, you know, pick a... a couple of candies here and there, or we'd look at stuff that we couldn't quite afford. And, uh, I, I would always go for those little gummy sharks. Those were my favorite thing. Uh, but after I'd paid this one time, I noticed a little piece of maple fudge sitting right at eye level at counter height. That was just calling my name. It just, it wanted me to take it, but I had already spent my allowance. And so I ended up taking that piece of fudge. As a little five-year-old boy, uh, I decided that this was my fudge. I'm going to take it now. Um, and I got home, and I opened it up, and I ate it. And despite the rather small nature of this infraction, I was totally racked with guilt. This fudge... No fudge has ever tasted as bitter as this fudge did. That is possibly the earliest memory I have of sinning in my life, of, of actively choosing to do something wrong. I knew what I was doing. I knew I was taking something. It wasn't just this innocent little thing that I didn't know any better. I actively did something that I knew was wrong. You see, deep inside me, that was something that I understood. So what is sin? For many of us, we didn't grow up with the, the benefit of having Old Testament law. We read in scripture about uh, this, this battle between, you know, the new covenant and the old covenant. And uh, a lot of people in, in biblical times had, a lot of Jewish people specifically, had that knowledge of the Old Testament law. They, uh, they that's not necessarily something we had growing up, but a lot of us were probably taught the Ten Commandments. And um, just like the Old Testament law, it's tempting to think of those commandments, of, of those instructions, as a list of do's and do nots, a, a thing, a checklist of things that we should but not commit some sort of infraction against, lest we be condemned to hell or be found guilty in front of God. You see, that's, a, that's not the attitude that we should take about it, but it's still tempting to think about that. Sometimes it, it's easy to get into this, uh, this mindset where we picture this scale weighing out our relative goodness against the relative bad things we do. And if, if we maybe just end up with the scale tipping slightly more in favor of the good things we've done in our life, that, you know, we're going to be okay and everyone who, who manages to do that is going to make it to heaven and, you know... That's not how God set up his covenant with us. That's not how he set up the old covenant with us, and that's not how the new covenant. Um, Jesus makes this a little more clear. I'm going to share a passage, a couple of passages uh, from Matthew chapter 5. 
Uh, we're bouncing around a little bit, so uh, have your Bible handy. We're in chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Later on in verse 21, he continues, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, again, later in 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In verse 43, he says, Look, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than they? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus is doing here is that he's, he's making it clear that any kind of sin is still sin. When he talks about the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about the law. So in, in the Greek alphabet, there are all sorts of letters uh, called characters. Uh, the smallest one is an iota. And so the smallest stroke of a pen would be that little iota. It's like the, the size of a comma or an apostrophe. And breaking that means you're guilty of having broken the law. And that's his point here, is that uh, there's there isn't this like sliding scale of how bad your sin is. Sin is sin. The, the word sin comes from the Latin, which means to miss the target. It's an archery term. Picture drawing an arrow and, and firing and completely missing the target. That's what the word sin literally means. When we miss the target that God sets for us, we have committed sin. Regardless of if we miss by a mile or by six inches, we have still missed the target of perfection that God is. Because God is sinless. God is holiness. God is that perfection. And if we're anything short of that, we're guilty of missing the mark. So with the standard that Jesus is setting here, it almost seems like a lost cause trying not to sin. I mean, if it's such a sure thing, why why get so riled up? What's the point of, of worrying about sin anyway? If everyone's doing it, what's, what's the big issue? Well, there's a little more to it than that. In Romans chapter 3, we read, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have come together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cur cursing and bitterness. 
their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we all become conscious of sin. That seems pretty bleak. If, if you spend too much time reading only Romans chapter 3, you're going to be pretty depressed. This is, this is a, a bleak outlook of our relationship with God. And, and Paul's doing this on purpose. He's writing to a church that he doesn't really know. He knows a few individuals there, but he's never been with them. He doesn't know what's going on in the church. And so he's, he's setting up this arc of his letter. And if you read Romans in one sitting, it's a fantastic roller coaster of emotion. But he's at this point now where he is, he is breaking down the fact that because God is holy and perfect and the absolute example of sinlessness, any tiny iota, any tiny stroke of the pen that has gone wrong in your life means you are infinitely worse at sin than God is. The fact is that sin ruins lives. It's easy to sometimes justify the little slip-ups we have in our life, like maybe it's just an innocuous little white lie or... If you think about the standard that Jesus set for us, think about if someone calls another brother a fool, he's just as guilty as having murdered him. If someone looks at a woman lustfully, he's just as guilty as committing adultery with her. Think about that standard. The more selfish I get, even in the little small things, it takes away from what I could be giving to other people. It takes away from the, the standard of perfection that God has set. It destroys your relationships. Sin destroys relationships, not just with God, but with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your friends, with your co-workers. Sin and selfishness destroys those relationships. But most importantly, is the one it destroys with God. What does sin, sin do to our relationship with God? As we know, God is, is, is perfect. He is our sinless creator. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. He's, he's merciful. But he's just. He is the example of justice. And that means that no wrong can go unpunished. If God allowed uh, a wrong to go unpunished, then what justice would there be in the world? What justice would there be if there was no consequence for sinful living? As humans, we strive for justice and vindication. It, it's written on our hearts. It's imprinted on us deeply and, and God knows that as our creator. He knows that that is part of the fabric of our being, that, that that is one of the things we strive for in our life. Earlier in, in Paul's letter to the Roman church, he says, 
you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So it may seem like we're going in circles here a little bit. Everyone's sin. God hates sin. No one is righteous. Therefore, everyone gets condemned. It, it seems like this, this inescapable circle. But what God does is that he's solved that sin problem. He's solved that cycle. God makes it so that every sin must be accounted for. But think about when your friend picks up the bill at lunch or pays for your coffee or something. God has a plan to pick up the tab for our sins as well. We're going to turn to one of the most well-known Bible verses, uh, John 3.16. Um, if you're a wrestling fan, you've seen those in the, in the stands. You see it at baseball games. What does John 3.16 actually say? Well, here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be plain that what he has done has been done through God. Every sin must be accounted for. If God is just, if God is, is right, there must be an accounting for every sin. God doesn't turn a blind eye to it. God instead looks at the amazing sacrifice of Jesus paying for our sins. That's the accounting that's happening. He's, he's exacting his payment from Jesus instead of from us. So if God is just and every sin must be accounted for with some sort of punishment or atonement is a better word. Instead of making us pick up that tab, Jesus has picked it up for us. One of my, uh, my favorite podcasts, J.D. Greer at, at Summit Church said, Jesus isn't standing beside God in heaven saying, hey, give this guy one more chance or, or let this one slide. He'll, he'll do better next time. He's not standing there saying that. He's, he's saying you can't condemn him for that because I've already paid for it. 
Jesus isn't some conciliary talking the, the boss man into not exacting punishment. He's saying that punishment has already been made and accounted for. So what is our response supposed to be? If our sin has been paid for, what is our response? This is exactly why I have hope. This is why I can face myself in the mirror sometimes is because I have hope that I am not this wretched, sinful guy who keeps falling short of God's target. I can respond in one of two ways. I can be transformed by this tremendous gift I've been given by God, or I can keep doing the same old sinful thing, not acknowledging the amazing offer of forgiveness. One more passage in Romans in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. That's what grace is about, is that we are freed from the atonement and punishment of our sin, but a price was still paid for it. So our attitude should be one recognizing that a price had to be paid, but grateful that it wasn't us that had to pay that price. When faced with the incredible selflessness of Jesus, I can't help but feel inadequate. My sin feels insurmountable at times. There's no way for me to ever remove that tiny little blotch of, of black from an otherwise perfectly white canvas that God has given me. Or think of a soiled piece of linen out of this great tapestry. You, you can't ever totally replace that. What I can do is simply this. Just accept that God wants to forgive me. That Jesus wants his sacrifice to restore my relationship with God. And if that's the case, 
then I could live my life with gratitude and the same love and mercy that God showed me, I can show to others. So here's the brass tacks. If you're out there and if if you're a Christian who's struggling in a cycle of sin and you're down on yourself, don't get down on yourself. Recognize that that has been paid for through Jesus and repent and, and conduct your life as someone who's just had this tremendous debt lifted off their accounts. If you're out there and you've, you've never been to church, you just happened to come across this podcast or someone shared it with you, uh, find a church, find where this treasure is at. This, this gift that's being given to us is, is like lifting a thousand pounds off our shoulders. It's, it's, it's not that Christians are, are holy or better. It's, it's that we've been forgiven for all the same things we struggle with as, as you do. Don't just sit there and let this message pass through your ears and do nothing about your life, whether you're a Christian or not. This is a real opportunity to acknowledge that, yes, there is sin in my life, but I can be forgiven for it. If you've got any questions about this or if you have any sort of you know, doubts about your relationship with God or, you know, what, what God wants you to do, reach out to us. We, we'd love to get in touch with you. We'd love to put you in, in contact with some, some good resources. Learn more about this gift of forgiveness that God is offering you. It's free. It is totally free. You just have to accept that God wants to forgive you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in again. I really appreciate your support here on Spreading the Word. Uh, Again, it's not about me. It's about spreading the Word of God. This gospel that we're called to share is just what I've been talking about for the past 22 minutes. Jesus died for our sins. God hates sin but wants to forgive us for it. Guys, don't let this opportunity pass you by. God has been so good to me, and he's filled me with so much hope and peace over the years, and I just want to share that with you. Thank you again so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.